0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our third ever episode of Talking Hedge. I'm your host, Pratesh Ruperel, Chief Commercial Officer at Shore Hedge. This morning, I'm honored to introduce our guest today, Robert Smith. Rob is a world-class technologist who's held many senior roles in the industry. I know Rob's a humble man, so hopefully he won't mind me running through his CV, but Rob was formerly Chief Technology Officer and Head of Asia for Getco, where he was responsible for spearheading their expansion across global markets. He was also former head of Europe for Night Capital Group, and is currently the founder and chief executive officer of Applied Financial Technology Limited in London. Rob, welcome. Thanks, Prit. Now, Rob, be- I, know, <laughs> I know we have uh, many of your friends and peers in the industry joining us this morning, but for those of you who don't know, Rob, uh, maybe we could start off by giving us a little bit of ba- about your background, how you got into the space. brought what kind of brought you here and 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 what's going on with your current venture applied to financial technology sure
1: uh so started life as a technologist i went to i went to university of massachusetts got a degree in computer engineering and came out into the industry realized that that software was was interesting but it sitting in a cubicle and sort of plugging away all day was wasn't what I kind of had in mind so ended up going back to school getting a degree in finance and turns out that when I came into the industry that was a pretty good combination in that it just it brought together the way the world was moving and and it just was really a good timing I think for the way the industry was moving so I ended up working for, I was living in Boston, ended up working for a hedge fund there, moved to Chicago, ended up working for a hedge fund there, and then joined GetGo back in 2001. And from there, a few years later, put together the business plan to open up Asia, moved off to Singapore, was there for five years, built that side of the business, and then was asked to come to the UK and take over the office that was here. Uh, Not long after I arrived in the uk we went through the merger with knight capital and the, the business changed dramatically i exited thought about retiring realized that i still had more to to give so you know it's, it's kind of set up and really applied financial technology is trying to leverage my background in being in the industry in the trading industry for for many years but kind of recognizing how things had changed and, and, and wanting to do something a bit different. Financial markets are, are huge and there's all kinds of different ways that you can, that you can participate. And there's all kinds of different you know, strategies, technologies that, that, you can, that you can apply. It's, it's really a, a, a very engaging and challenging way to, to try to sort of apply you know, your trade around technology and trading uh, but in in different ways, so you know we we have a bit of a different model here, but yeah. it's it's really trying to leverage technology in ways that we haven't that haven't been leveraged in the past.
0: Great, okay, that's very interesting. So so maybe a good starting point would be to get you to to explain to the audience, you know, what is high frequency trading?
1: <laughs> so so what we used to say high frequency trading, it, it, high frequency is a time frame not a strategy and I think there was a big a big sort of misnomer and really there's no I think the term was coined by a journalist it wasn't when we came into the industry there wasn't a thing high frequency trading there weren't firms that were high frequency trading firms and and really I'll go right into sort of what I kind of see as the origin of this but Sure. If you go back 2,500 years, you had Greek merchants who, who go to the hillside, standing and looking at the ships coming in from, from, the, from the ocean and seeing how heavily laden they are with, with their goods, oil, you know, yeah. olive oil, whatever. And what do you do with that? I don't know, You run down to the market. If, if, the, if there's a lot of supply coming in, maybe you lower your prices. If, if, if the ships are very light, maybe you, you mark your prices up go fast forward 2400 years you've got baron von reuter in 1847 who's who's using carrier pigeons to get financial news between berlin and paris yeah 16 years later he's he's got some deal with with ships coming in from the u.s they throw canisters of news into the water off the southwest corner of, of ireland and he's telegraphing that to to london again to get news there faster so the point is that over time, technology has, has changed, but people have always understood the value of, of getting information faster and faster. So high-frequency trading as you see it today is not, it's not a new thing that all of a sudden somebody discovered something or some technology just appeared on the scene. It's really been an evolution over, over hundreds and hundreds of years because people understood the value of, of getting information and using that information in financial markets and technology has just continued to progress over that time. I mean, everyone's familiar with Moore's law that every 18 months you have a doubling of the, of the compute power. Yep. And the same thing has happened, not just in computing power, but telecommunications and, and the, the capacity of, of systems to generate information and transmit information. So again, it's really just been a, 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 a historical evolution. More recently though, 1993, uh, two academics wrote a paper which was looking at spreads in NASDAQ. So, yep. um, the, the Christian Schultz, I think, were their names. And they, you know, really, this, this paper was just questioning why are all NASDAQ quotes a, a quarter wide, so 25 cents wide. And that actually led to a major lawsuit by the SEC against, against these dealers, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in fines and because they, basically you had the Nasdaq dealers were, were colluding or that was the, that was the, the premise of the SEC okay that led to some changes in regulation the order the SEC updated their order handling rules which which provided more transparency around prices and 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 more but had brought more liquidity on screen if you will and then SEC then also passed Reg ATS a little while later which which really enabled firms to which enabled new types of exchanges ecn's electronic communication networks i don't know where they got that name it seems kind of like uh, it, it seems a little <laughs> strange but you had so you had these regulatory changes coming down the, the coming down the line a few years later like 2000 and 2001 you have decimalization coming into the industry so instead of instead of stocks trading in quarters and eighths and sixteenths now you have penny, penny pricing. So you had a really big shift in who, who's participating in the street and how they're participating. I mean, you really need to use technology at this point because it's no longer quarters and ace. Your spreads go from being 25 cents wide down to one penny. And that that I think had a real big disruption in, in the industry. So things were just always changing. And I think that that, really highlights another point which i think is kind of important right? regulators have a, a really tough job because what they need to do is to be looking at their constituency and on one hand they need to protect investors right that that's that's one of the major functions they they need to protect the public but at the same time they also need to enable competition so reg ats for example is a is the kind of regulation that enables competition in the market and and that enables innovation. That enables changes. And those changes, in the end, end up helping investors because you create more liquidity. You narrow spreads. So anyone who's participating in these markets now, their total cost is good, dramatically decreases. So it's a it's a fairly important function of the regulators. Again, they provide protections, but also enable competition because, in the end, that helps investors as well. Okay. And, and was,
0: the, was the point where things moved to decimalization the point at which you realized this was going to be a structural market shift or, or was, it, was it later on?
1: I would love to say that I sat there and I, oh, I, I really recognize what's happening. <laughs> I, I, w- I was in the middle of it. I mean, okay. I didn't, and I actually joined just after decimalization was a thing. I mean, I remember when I was growing up, you'd open the Wall Street Journal and look at the prices of stocks. Like, okay, this is, a, you know, 47 and a quarter. And, but when I joined Gecko, prices were, they were in decimals. And it's on the screen, and so it, it, I didn't really come into it, and was able to sit there and know oh, I, I see the way the world is going. I mean, I'm in hindsight, it all seems to make perfect sense, but at the yeah. time, I had no idea. Yeah, fair enough. And and I guess one of the
0: one of the big debates, as you say, that the market has is this kind of balance between risk and reward. You know, and, and you know, different people have different opinions on whether the the profits that market makers make are fair or not. You know, or whether the kind of fruits that they're enjoying are, are the result of regulation and technology arbitrage. What, what's
1: your view on this? I, I think that if you, if you look at the large market makers, yep. they invest huge amounts of money in, in technology. Yep. They, they, they are putting their own capital on the line. And I think that to to say that, oh, it's just it's regulatory arbitrage, market making is an incredibly competitive space. And you I don't think you could really start a market making firm today without a couple hundred million in capital because you need the data centers, you need the, the lines, you need the hardware and and people look at, oh, well, how much profit are they making? But what they're what they're missing is the enormous investments that these firms are making. So I don't think it's unfair at all. It's like that's you, any business, any any corporation. The whole point is that that you take resources like capital and technology and people, and and you do something productive with that. And so I, I don't think that the level of profit is at all uh, outsized for the amount of investment that that it goes into that kind of business.
0: So I'm assuming from that you know we. All- many of this audience will have read Flash Boys and, you know, Mike, seen Michael Lewis's positioning of the industry and kind of almost villainization of it. Is that, how do you feel about this?
1: I I think it's a little bit unfortunate. I, I will start by saying I love Michael Lewis. I've, I've read all yeah. of his books and I, yeah. <laughs> I really enjoy all of them. I, I feel like I learn a lot. This particular one, though, was because I was so embedded in the industry. Yeah, I did feel like there was bits of it where there's this, there's a scene in the book where uh, Brad Kutzumaya is, is in his boss's office and they, they sort of discover that by placing a trade, they, they kind of light up the screens and there's activity in all these other data centers. Now, yeah, that's just the way, that's the way that the market works. And, and it partly is you know, through regulation, Reg NMS. So Reg ATS brought all these other trading platforms online: Island, Arca, Brute, and then you had Reg NMS, where now the 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 the, the all the these data centers, all these market centers are connected. Well, of course, you know, I think at one point somebody had quoted something about there 250 different sort of venues that you could trade or sh- share of Microsoft on in the U.S. That was a, that's a result of competition, that's a result of innovation. But what, what's wrong with that? I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean there's, there's definitely a balance between fragmenting liquidity, but at the same time, do you want to stifle innovation so it all is one place and, and, and one exchange has a monopoly? I don't think that's the right answer either. So I think that when you you, you can't look at the industry and say, oh, this is wrong, or this is evil. I mean, and in, even in fact, if you go to, if you think about what what Flash Boys like, what's the what's the origin of the name? Now, I don't know if this is exactly what Michael Lewis was thinking when when he titled the book, but I believe it was Brute as a platform had a had an order type called the Flash order, and what they would do was you had market participants connecting to the exchange, connecting to their platform, and because other platforms would charge routing fees for their orders brutes idea was to show it to people who are connected if, if an order was not filled to show it to or to people who are directly connected to them in order to save money for the for the people who are trading by not having to outbound out the order so it, it, they're, they're putting this forward as a, as, as a, a benefit. And it's, it's a benefit, you know, you're trying to save someone money, so that's an innovation. But then all of a sudden it, it has, it ends up with a, this really evil connotation. Oh, these guys are seeing the orders first. Well, yeah, but, but why? because they're trying to save people money. So like with the motivation behind the whole thing is actually just about bringing more innovation and bring more competition to the market. It's a perfect, if, if someone says, you know, I've got a way to save you money. What are you gonna say? No, 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 I don't I don't wanna do that. That's, <laughs> that, that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Talk, man. So if, if you really understand the origin of some of these things, it's just, it's not evil. It's not it's not trying to take advantage of people. It's, you know, different businesses are out there trying to, to create, a more price competition and more efficiency throughout the whole system
0: yeah so i guess you feel it is it is possible to draw a clear distinction between predatory trading and genuine market making
1: so you know i think i i struggle a little bit with the term predatory trading i mean what okay. is, what is predatory trading no one forces someone to put an order on the market and, and really okay. if you don't want to buy or sell at a certain price you shouldn't put the order there in the first place all of these, all of these electronic platforms have are you're, you're putting an order out there now. Yes, if there's 250 different venues you could trade a share of Microsoft on, then not every single price is is going to be identical. No. And but but if you can actually get away with, and and I would actually say that through through time. The the liquidity in these markets has actually increased dramatically. So that's going to bring the prices much more in line. And if there is some some oddball pricing out there, then you know yes, it can happen. But is it going to happen all the time? Are you going to build a business on that? No, you're you're not going to. I mean, it, it may happen. But again, the the term predatory pricing is like, well, who are you who are you preying on? Uh, like yeah. I don't. It just it, that doesn't even make sense to me. Fair enough. That's good
0: and one thing i'd love to talk to you about is kind of understanding from a market maker's perspective some kind of big event. so if we take say the flash crash in 2010 i mean my, yep. many of us who were trading you know i, I wasn't an electronic market maker but i was a market maker in the derivatives market and i just remember watching cnbc and seeing the dow getting slammed a thousand points and yep. you know you got jim jim kramer talking about procter and gamble and how it's a it's a buy and the stock moves up 25 percent in minutes be, it, but, you know, in, in your mind, what what triggered that move and what, what was it like trading that day from a,
1: from a market maker's perspective? So, I mean, I think what, what triggered it, what I had heard was that there was a, a trader who essentially fat fingered uh, a, an S&P order into the okay. CME. And because of the interconnectedness of markets... You have you have a, your same basic risk, which is your S and P five hundred risk, but you've got the futures, you've got options, you got ETS, you have the underlying stocks. Sure. So the the there was so much selling pressure from from this this algo that it was trying to redistribute itself throughout the market. Okay. Now, one of the when you have. Huge amounts of, of excess order flow coming in. There are technology systems behind this that, that sometimes don't ha- cannot handle the capacity. And Reg that was passed in the US really sort of mandated the interconnectedness of the markets and, and, the, and the quotes. So I think the market was just flooded. Now, from a market making perspective, uh, any market maker who, especially ones who have obligations, are going to be buying all the way down and selling all the way up. So it's not pretty, but you don't sit there and say, well, you know, I think I'll, I'll turn off now. I mean, market makers are their their function is to is to provide a two sided quote to provide liquidity in the market. So they're taking all the risk on that. Now, as a market maker, what you're hoping for is that the market calms down a bit and recreates an equal equilibrium point where you have enough two way flow that you can maybe make back your losses on that. But market makers are are standing there and 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 again buying all the way down. So that they have massive risk. And again, if they if they end up making a profit, well, that's you know, they they took a they took a massive risk. They put their own capital on the line. It's it's not an it's not an unfair situation. They've signed up for those obligations. And a lot of times market makers that you have some benefits, you you get rebates, you get lower trading fees. But you will have to work for that. It's not the the exchanges are not just giving that away for free. So, so it's a it, it, it's a symbiotic relationship where they're they're going to take the risk, but that's their business. That's what they're doing. So, sure, and scary. and I mean, it was frightening. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Um, and and like you know, the, the motivation has to be there in one way. So, from a market maker's perspective, I mean, when I look at it these kind of large one-way sustained moves. You've seen some earlier this year with stocks like GameStop, AMC, but you would you would just assume that for a market maker, these are just loss generating events. Is that, is that what it is? Are they kind of, they take those losses with the overall flow of the business from which they profit from, or are, or are they able to turn these events into a profitable trading opportunity?
1: Well, again, it's, it really kind of comes down to, on any sustained move, in a in a short term, a market maker is going to take a loss. they're going they're gonna sell all the way up. Right. Um, but what you're hoping for is enough two-way flow on the liquidity there to to be able to turn that off. And really, depending on what kind of products you're trading, you're you're trying to keep your your delta risk as low as you can. So maybe you know, yeah, you're 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 selling at higher or higher prices, but you're trying to buy back as quickly as you can too. Sure. So um that that's not a I mean a generally, you're gonna have some days that that don't work out well, but you, but you have to you're obligated to stay in the game, and generally yeah. that would work out for you.
0: Yeah, no, that made that makes sense. It's kind of like the success of your um, critical mass in the industry kind of helps you in those positions if you're if you, exactly exactly. Yeah. And, and so you know, you've kind of talked through the kind of the arguments for and against, I guess, fragmentation of a market versus trying to concentrate into a single venue but would you be able to just give a quick summary on what you think that the the arguments for the fragmented structures are
1: well uh, the the arguments for fragmented structures. yeah versus versus, i think if you if you look at different if you look at the different platforms and you look at like different pricing schemes that they've they've come up with over time you you see a lot of change you see a lot of innovation in the pricing structures for the exchanges so there's a huge argument to be made that enabling the fragmentation enables a lot a lot of innovation in, in pricing and then in technology and what they're offering. And I think that's a really important function of of the financial market. So of any of any market, you want innovation because that's actually what drives creates efficiency and lowers your cost. At the same time, one of the primary functions of a marketplace is is. Price discovery. And the more fragmentation you have, the more difficult price discovery becomes. So that's your that's your argument against it. But at the same time, this is one of, I think one of the bases of Reg NMS is okay, we you want you you want to create more transparency across the different venues. And so you can get to a single price for for an instrument. Okay. So
0: we've we've one of the things I definitely want to talk to you about was payment for order flow and and somebody's actually asked a question already about the meme stock trend so i thought i'd I'd put it into one so so obviously payment for order flow has kind of spawned this commission-free trading industry that retail investors seem to be very heavily involved with but do you think this is a a favorable innovation you know having their all-in costs in one commission free structure or do you think there are other ways to manage this
1: so i think it's in general i think it's a fairly good structure in that yep. the, you have this benefit to, to the entire investing public. Now, I, I think that in the US, the US a, across the globe has like the highest number of households who, have, who, who are owners of stock you know, right. compared to, to other countries. Yep. There's a lot of retail trading out there. And it used to be, I mean, when I, when I started, the first time I placed a trade, it was like forty nine ninety five. Um, it was the discount, and, and right. actually in the U.S., I mean, the U.S. used to actually regulate uh, the uh, how much commission there was. And then Charles Schwab came on the scenes, and it was it was only forty nine ninety five for a stock trade. Okay. So whether you're going to buy one share or a hundred shares or you know, five thousand shares, that's incredibly expensive. Now you have you have uh, zero commission trading, and I'm actually a big believer in. In, in people investing so we're long-term investing yeah. and why not I mean, if you're going to be a long-term investor why would you not want a situation where okay you may not get the this smallest slice of a tenth of a penny on a, on a on a share of stock but at the same time now you don't have to pay 10 bucks i mean just i mean a year ago it was like 995 and then you know prices kept coming down but it's not it, it's really been when you when you it's I think it's it's naive to think that 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 firms that are providing services are not going to get paid. So really it's about shuffling around how, how people get paid. And I think that when you look at the fact that for a, a particular transaction, okay, you're giving up a, a very small price point but if you're a long-term investor like that shouldn't matter to you anyway and and really the the cash out of your bank you know in order to pay the commissions that's that's a big change that's a big change my light went off here no no problem (laughs) let me just stand up a second sure no problem there we go
0: there we go yeah so you'd almost say it's kind of led to a kind of healthy free market where the you know yes uh, yep
1: yeah so and I, it's I also i mean i think also just to be just to be clear it's not just it's not just payment for order flow that is driven the commissions down i mean also yeah, as you know different firms are are now have making creating their own ts uh, etfs they have more assets under management yeah. they're earning fees on on these assets so there's there's a lot of different streams of of revenue but it what they're what the firms are doing what the brokerage firms are doing are turning around and actually you know giving again lowering the cost and and preventing competition amongst the brokers so that's i think that's always a good thing
0: great um and i guess there's there's one area i guess that people kind of hear the phrase dark pools and they suddenly go (laughs) what is this but in my mind the big development came you know around 2007 when some of the legislation was introduced that allowed investors to bypass the, the public exchanges to achieve better pricing. Do you think it, it's a fair critique of dark pools to say that they create an uneven playing field among participants where you know public, whereby public participants have their bids offers and prices visible to everyone yet selected institutional in entities can execute out of the public eye?
1: So I want to go back to I think it was around 2003. Okay. Um, Getco was trading on, on the Island ECN, okay. and and we were getting to a point where Island was getting to a point where there is an SEC regulation about lit markets, and that that uh, one of these ECNs could not be more than a certain market share percentage. But Island had innovated; they they were they had a a, a liquidity adding rebate, or their pricing structure was was very innovative at the time, and. So they were growing market share. So they got to the point that they actually could not publish quotes because they were not allowed to by, by the SEC because they, you know, they, they, weren't, they weren't an exchange, they were an ECN, and there's reg, the significant regulatory differences. And I remember we were very nervous, like, well, all of our systems are, are consuming these quotes and we're, we're generating you know, orders based on these quotes, what's gonna happen? So, so they went dark and and in retrospect it's kind of an unfortunate choice of terminology because yeah. dark apply implies evil and, yeah. and you, know, you know something underhanded no it's just they weren't allowed to be lit so you know dark just made sense but i think that if you had to go back you might you might come up with something you know a slightly different and say well you know non-display i mean non-displayed quotes or you know some yeah. some of thing so I think that it starts off on the wrong foot because just because of the terminology. But again, what what's the SEC trying to do? They're trying to protect the they're trying to protect the, the, the public. But then when you, you move forward again, what you're trying, what the industry platforms are trying to do is to create price better pricing now it's pretty i mean uh, if you're sitting around a trading desk long enough you hear oh who's on the other side oh is golden on the other side of that oh you know and and <laughs> and everyone not everyone but there's there's sort of well understood lore that you know okay well if you see goldman then you, you want to change your prices you want to back away from that but that doesn't really serve the market as a whole particularly well in that you, you if you have a price for something you don't want, you know, you have a, a large order you're trying to put through, then why would you not want to get the price and not have a, a, a worse price just because of your name, just because of your size? Like that, you know, so I think that that's another innovation that what they're trying, what, what the platforms are trying to do is actually just create more price competition and, and better price discovery. because all of a sudden it becomes it's not about the asset itself it's about who's trading it but you know so is is that i I don't i struggle to see that that is is a bad thing okay and in terms of um,
0: maybe other practices such as bringing computers closer to the exchanges or laying fiber optic cables that give you give you an edge is that is that some participants taking advantage of others or is it truly just about market makers becoming more efficient
1: I was at a, I was at a party yes. this weekend. My, okay. my friends were hosting a birthday party for their, their one-year-old daughter. And I was speaking to a doctor from the NHS and we we're just discussing what we each do. And she asked, what about those people who hack the exchanges to get, to get the quotes, you know, faster? Oh my goodness.
0: <laughs>
1: um, first of all, <laughs> exchanges are highly, highly regulated. Exchanges are are not trying to cheat anybody. It doesn't serve anyone any purpose. If your business model or your investing footprint is to buy 100 shares of IBM a year and and build that over over 10 years, you can absolutely build a co-location center, put lots of computers in there, get fiber optic cable and 10 gig networks. But why would you want to do that? Like it doesn't make any sense, but it's not that you have to be in some certain special club to do that. The exchanges are offering, I mean, the exchanges are offering co-location centers, yeah. they're offering, offering proximity hosting. They're, they're offering a whole menu of how would you like to connect? You wanna go over to the internet? Fine. You wanna you, you want sort of a, a, a lease line? Fine. You, you wanna be in the same building? Fine. They're offering that because they recognize in the, in the same way that we talk about the, like the history of the value of information, depending on your business model, that information has more or less value. And you should, you should appropriately size your technology investment to what your business model is. So there is no, there's, there's nothing nefarious going on. And I mean, you know, the people are sending out quotes before the trades happen, Uh, no no actually the laws of physics still do apply so so that's not happening and again it's you know i I think that one of the unfortunate outcomes of of the book is that people have this impression that the exchanges are cheating and there's this like club and there's not people different companies market makers have have put in substantial investment yeah and that's their business model so so, no, I mean, I think that there's, it, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate misperception, but it's not, it, you know, it really doesn't work that way when you look under the covers.
0: Yeah, no, and that's good, that's good to understand. I think it's the the villainization from Flash Boys comes back to all us all. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and, and obviously your career is taking you to, to different parts of the world. And in terms of like the global expansion of HFT, everyone kind of, I still feel like they feel like it is maybe centric towards the West, but was there anything that surprised you in the way that the market making activities expanded across new regions such as Singapore, Hong Kong, Oz and so forth?
1: So I think if, if you look at if you look at a map of of the globe and you have the, the the US and then Europe and then Asia, you can somewhat draw a line about where where costs are lower, where liquidity is is higher. And when we talked, to, when we used to evaluate a market, we we looked at four different, we looked at four different sort of aspects of it. One was about liquidity. One was about cost, One was about technology. One's about regulation. And I think that if you you think about the U.S. market being the global benchmark. A lot of that is because there's more liquidity, because there's lower cost, because the regulators had had enabled this level of competition. And, yeah. and you just have you have liquidity flowing to where, where competition is strongest and, and where where the, the, the regulatory framework just works and enables competition, enables price competition. Yeah. And over time you've seen other like bats, for example, has you know started off in the US and then and now now is a very big player in europe but bringing that same kind of competition and then that innovation in the space to you know to different markets when asia was particularly expensive you know we yeah. had many 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 conversations with the singapore exchange about changing the pricing model you know, and in the us you never really dealt with with basis point pricing but in the in the UK you did, and UK shares you have stamp tax. You you don't you don't have that, and so now people trade CFDs instead because they're they don't have the stamp tax. But you as you as you look at the different regions, you have to compare those different things, and you see where where are costs, and then the, and then is there any wonder that liquidity is not is not as high as it is in the US? It, yeah. it, these things all play together. Yeah,
0: that, that makes sense. And I, I mean, reading your bio, there was something interesting. I mean, in, in 2013, I think KCG closed its Hong Kong office due to like a slow adoption of, of high, high frequency trading. Yep. And even at the time, from what I understood, you were ahead of Europe at this point, you basically pioneered Getco's expansion into Asia. So what, what do you think were the factors behind the slower adoption in Asia relative to
1: North American markets? Uh, again, it just it comes down to the the cost and liquidity. Fine. No. I mean I think that we you know we had an office in Singapore. Yeah. And then uh, and that was the, the the main office that we had. And then we we had to op- open an office in in Hong Kong and one in <laughs> India, and we were connected to most of the markets: so Japan, Hong Kong, um, Singapore, uh, Australia, and each each market required its own specialization, different brokers, different technology, different really lots and lots of, of differences that we had to adapt our trading platform to each of these markets. Now we had the real luxury of having the core of the platform working extremely well and and the, the the trading logic and the trading engines and and the traders who really understood how how to work with these markets and so our our big task was to connect the different marketplaces to to the platform but again each of the markets was smaller and each of the markets was was more expensive and and just took a lot more care building relationships building the technology building the data centers to 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 interact with each of those different marketplaces, and I think at a certain point, if you you know over that time with the merger between Gecko and KCG, there was a there was a change of focus. You know, your, your Knight Capital was not very big in Asia, and now I think that just there was a slight change in focus, and so sensibly the the company's looking at okay, well, how do we how do we you know focus on on the core business a bit more? Okay. And in terms of, I
0: guess, the future of electronic market making, how has the competition from other high frequency traders and other liquidity supplying low latency traders impacted the, the market making landscape?
1: Well, I think that it's, it's always been, I mean, one of the, it's always been a race. It's always been a technology race. And again, I think if you were setting out to start a high frequency or a market making from these days, you need a significant investment in technology. Now, one of, the, one of the things that I believe is true about market making is that the core of the trading strategy is relatively straightforward. Basically, you wanna be at the top of the book as much as you can. So oh, it, sure. it, it's, just, it's just that simple, except that that's horribly complex from a technology perspective. I mean, <laughs> you, 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 can't, you can't be at the top of the book and be second, like those, you know, so it's, it's a race. If you look at how, like the kinds of infrastructure that, that were being put in place over time, I mean, I remember this is 2001, we, we had like a fractional, we had a 128K line to, to Island. And then we're gonna, we're thinking about a, a fractional T1, but we actually went all the way in 1.544 megabits. Okay. A few years later, I call up one of our vendors and say, I'd like to, I'd like to get a T3, a T3. Are you kidding? I like, got uh, 45 megs. Like, yep. yeah. We, we definitely want that because, okay, fine. But then you, you go 10 gig, uh, 10 gig networks. You've got microwaves. Now you've got lasers. So people that as a technology progresses, these firms need to continue to invest. So it's always going to be, it's always going to be who's, who's out there first, who's, who's spending the money, making the investments in the technology because the value of getting the information first is, is incredibly important. And have the firms that, you know, founded this space
0: been key in investing in faster connections and market data fees? And has that resulted in barriers for, for new people from entering the industry
1: or? So, again, I go back to the, the, the fact that financial markets are huge. They're, they're just enormous market making is one small slice of that market, but yes. there, are, uh, there are countless people out there with different ideas, different strategies, different ways to approaching the market. And I believe that that yes, the leading edge technology, so microwaves and lasers are, are very, very expensive, yes. but to get something just a little bit slower these days, you, you can have very, very high quality, fast connections for a fraction of what you could have had before, the, the challenge is: what are you going to do with that? What kind of strategy are you going to employ? What how are you going to, to monetize that? You know, how are you going to set up your business? But it's such a vast landscape that to say that oh well, you know I can't compete in the financial markets because these guys have lasers like you're kidding <laughs> like that's, that's like that's a that's an incredibly defeatist attitude and I, I just don't I, I I don't see that as making any sense. But again, yeah, as technology has progressed what's accessible to people. I mean, now you have, you, know, you have the CME, you know, putting all of their, their historical market data in the cloud. You want tick by tick. It's all out there market by order. It's all out there. It's all, it's all out there for a fraction of the cost that it used to be to work with that data. You, you now spin up a data center with a, with a, a shell script. Okay, fine. I mean, you just couldn't do that in, in, in the past. So I think that there's, plenty of opportunity and it's really it's it's unlimited it's limited only by the imagination of the people who are participating
0: well there you go for anyone who's listening and uh, <laughs> dreaming i think rob's given you a the green flag to go ahead i mean there you go just need <laughs> just need to, to go for it really uh, ideation breaks yeah. new ideas at the end of the day
1: and uh, there's actually one one point i wanted to go back to about sort of like the risk you know the risk of 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 the business and talking about technology and these data communication lines and things like that. One, one really important aspect of market making is that, or, or any automated trading, any algorithmic trading is that if you have a decision engine in, in code, in a computer, the the algorithm that you're running is making decision based on the information that it's presented. Now, the longer, the higher your latency between the the real market center where things are happening and your decision engine, the higher your risk, because your algorithm is making a decision, but it's assuming that it has the state of the world as the world exists at that time. But it never really does, you know, in, 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 in you know go back to 1847 where where you've got sort of you know something happened in berlin and then there's a carrier pigeon which is actually the reason they were using pigeons because it was faster than the train right you know i mean <laughs> but but the world has moved on you know like yeah. i don't know you know a couple days later this news gets somewhere somebody's making a decision but the world has moved on the world has changed that is just as true on a, a day by day, hour by hour basis, as it is on a, on, a, on a microsecond by microsecond basis, the world has moved on. You know, you 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 now some the prices have changed. You're you have the risk of of having making wrong decisions based on old information, and so very sensibly, what you need to do is to you get that information and process that information as fast as you possibly can, and the. The landscape ends up looking like if you have if you can make better decisions if you can make lower risk decisions, you can actually narrow spreads you can lower the cost for the entire marketplace if you are forced to be slow yep. then you have to recognize that risk and how and how do you compensate for that you compensate for that by having wider spreads but that doesn't serve the investing public so, so, so- yeah, no,
0: that makes sense. And, and that maybe is a good way to lead on to of, I had a question come in from, from somebody who says, to level the playing field and address layered conflicts of interest, should we regulate high-frequency trading further? So I guess that comes to the point of, you know, is it going to slow
1: things down? or? Well, you know... I think the whole question about slowing things down. So I, I, again, you know, with, with with, in flash boys, I mean that, you know, the investors exchange, They took 20 miles of fiber optic cable and put it into a box. It's an interesting, it's an interesting thought, but when, but at the end of the day, what are you actually doing? You're, 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 you're number one, you're just changing the point to where the race is. So now the race is not to the matching engine of the exchange. It's actually just to the entry point of the exchange. Okay. So you haven't really accomplished all that much by by doing that. I mean, it sounds good, but really, is it effective? But also, go back to the fact that if the world has moved on and you have an exchange that is slower, you're going to compensate for that by by widening your spreads. It's the only sensible thing you can do to compensate for the risk that you're taking. So, does that really serve people? It's it's hard. It's hard for me to be to to feel that slowing things down makes sense because latency equals risk it's just that simple yep brilliant well
0: look rob uh, this has been fascinating for me to have a chance to go through this with you appreciate you taking the time to join us oh you're again. very welcome it's
1: great um, to be here okay.
0: thank you um i think it's a good point to end it there so thanks thanks guys for attending it's been uh, been a pleasure
1: okay
0: thank you thanks rob Bye-bye.